as cast. In the last podcast, we talked at length about the political career of a cog in the Tennessee Democrat machine, namely Paul Cantrell. His reign as sheriff became more of the same for a county beaten down by corruption. And then it got worse. Cantrell's myopic reign saw increased fee grabbing, corrupted elections, and the creation of a localized political machine that locked into Tennessee's wider Democrat machine. And as the machine grew, it forcibly blocked out any opposition. Cantrell's story is troubling. It shows how you can often start with the best of intentions and believe in your own importance, only to fall to the same inertia. Right now I'm looking at a photo of an Armistice Day celebration in Athens, Tennessee, 1945. Since the cessation of hostilities of World War I, Americans have celebrated Armistice Day on the 11th day of the 11th month of the year. Armistice celebrations in 1945 must have had a special feel to them, a real show of emotion. On May 8th of 1945, hostilities ended in Europe. V.E. Day, they called it. Guns went quiet as the Soviets hoisted the hammer and sickle over the Reichstag. An occupation began. On September 2nd, the waters of the Pacific stilled. The Japanese stared at the radioactive craters that were Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They called September 2nd VJ Day. About 400,000 Americans had lost their lives in the war years. The young men from McMinn County who'd survived the war started to trickle home throughout that year. Going back to that Red Book I mentioned in a previous podcast, let's let the author describe the scene on November 11th, 1945, as men began to come home. Farmers are dressed in pressed bib overalls. Women have on high-heeled shoes. Leading the way in front of the bands and parade floats is a vehicle full of veterans in uniform. Men's hats and pronounced padding on the shoulders of women's suits make a first post-war fashion statement. Smiles are everywhere. The focus of the crowd's attention is fully on the men who have returned from the war. End quote. You might remember that I mentioned a Hallmark movie about the Battle of Athens and called An American Story. Well, here's a clip from the trailer. From the Hallmark Hall of Fame. They won a distant war for freedom. But the home they fought for was no longer the one they had left behind. That movie opens on this same parade scene, Armistice Day, 1945. Marching bands, people dressed as Uncle Sam, lots of balloons, you get the picture. This celebration might have been the first great public celebration Athens had thrown in years. The town surged with emotion over the homecoming of so many young men. At the same time, they mourned the ones that never got back at all. But the parade dressed up a rocky homecoming. As Bill White described in our first chapter, The Soldier, the veteran welcoming committee wasn't mothers and wives. He came home to brandished weapons and the scowls of Pat Mansfield's deputies. The last time you saw Paul Cantrell, he sat in his office, fresh off a victory in the 1944 elections. He hadn't sat back since then. No, Paul Cantrell, our favorite genteel Southern politician, and Pat Mansfield, his hand-picked sheriff with the big nose and the big temper, spent their time scheming. FDR had, at the national level, created a blue monster. Democrats across the nation, and in Tennessee, worked to create a blue dynasty that would last for decades. One of Cantrell's efforts to cement his rule was involving a guy by the name of gerrymander. Gerrymander. Gerrymandering. That's a joke, sorry. What I'm referring to is gerrymandering. This is the concept of redrawing districts in your favor, and it's not new. Think of your hometown and the determining borders that make it up. Now, change the borders of your town to encompass the next town. Further, change the map so that you get all the poor people on both towns in one district, the rich people in another, the people who are one party and the people who are another party in separate districts, the people who are one color, the people who aren't that color, and otherwise sort out the map so that you always win your elections. Recently, in 2019, our Supreme Court kicked decisions about gerrymandering back to the states. 
In the 1940s, Paul Cantrell and the Democrats had been using gerrymandering to solidify their rule. Let me give you an example. According to the Daily Post-Athenian, that local Athens paper, Paul Cantrell had trouble with the Republican County Court for years during his reign as sheriff. Remember the pinball incident, the one with the games and the different shops? Well, that was a Republican court that had embarrassed Cantrell. Rather than patiently deal with the courts and maybe try to get along, try to compromise, Cantrell and his Tennessee General Assembly worked on redrawing district lines. They passed redistricting measures that resulted in a Democrat sweep of elected positions in the courts. Cantrell and his sheriff, Pat Mansfield, could now operate without harassment. Yep, that's old gerrymander for you. Classic gerrymandering. McMinn County had to watch Cantrell and the rest of the Tennessee political machine redraw borders. But the attitudes had begun to change. People realized that the Allies would win the war and the boys would come home. Where in 1943, say, I couldn't find many stories about political corruption in McMinn County, by 1945, the attitude in the papers sounded punchy. One Lions Club put out a periodical in 1945 asking, quote, Are you a man or a mouse? If this gerrymandering bill is passed, it will more than likely mean your vote isn't worth two cents unless you vote as they wish. End quote. The Lions Club then says about McMinn County, quote, Paul Cantrell will tell you where to stand and when to sit. Are you a man or a worm? End quote. How's that for dramatic? That quote came from a column by the name of Joe Hatcher, who pulled no punches in his politics columns in the Nashville Tennessean. In another column from July of 1945, right as the war is coming to an end, a Chattanooga Times reporter says that the Cantrell and McMinn County is, quote, modeled after the Crump machine and is really little peanuts other than as a symbol of fester rottenness on democracy, end quote. Little peanuts, festering rottenness. Nice. This Chattanooga Times column specifically mentions the ability of the machines to get the vote out. They say, quote, The vote-getting ability of the Cantrell machine in the 1946 senatorial and gubernatorial elections will not be of great importance. While several reputable newspapers of East Tennessee condemn the Cantrell machine, they do not do so because they believe that the vote controlled by political bosses may elect a U.S. senator or Tennessee governor, but only because the machine methods are of the worst type and are against the principles of democracy. End quote. That's right. A new election is coming in 1946. This is the election that Bill White mentions. Open discussion of the Democrat corruption meant popular concern. Reporters writing screeds like these in the papers don't happen unless the paper is wholly willing to burn bridges with those politicians. So what changed? Remember I said 1943 you couldn't find a thing about this? Well, I left you with a painted picture of Cantrell's 1944 election win. Everything seemed to be going great for him. Well, the United States is a big place, and the movements at hand were bigger than just Tennessee. Politics were shifting. Cracks had started to appear in the armor of the Democrats at every level, especially nationally. FDR had won his unprecedented fourth term in 1944. But Roosevelt didn't win by as big of a margin as he had before. He'd pulled too many stunts, like trying to pack the Supreme Court, and people started to sour on him. And then he died. That happened in April of 1945, right around the time Tennessee politicians started to oil the political machines for the next year's 1946 elections. Since Roosevelt's health was a sore subject and kept in the realm of rumor during his presidency, his death must have come as a shock to Democrats everywhere. The man had presided for 12 years in that office. But something else changed as the war ended, and that's demographics. GIs filtered home in the fall of 1945 and into springtime 1946, which meant that all of a sudden, the county had an influx of young men. Many of them had more money in their wallets than they ever had in their entire lives. Uncle Sam did pay soldiers for their service, and for years, many of those soldiers didn't even have a place to spend that cash. Veterans like Bill White, who carried experiences that we can't even imagine, came home to disappointment. Remember, he describes how his homecoming was already tough. At one point, he actually notes in the oral history that his bed was too soft and he had to sleep on the floor to actually get to sleep. 
Add to that how GI saw rampant corruption in the sheriff's office, packed county courts, they met a guy named Jerry Mander, and heard stories about the corrupted elections of every cycle that had gone through. Well, many of the GIs were furious. GIs read the newspaper, too. They knew the score. With that 1946 election approaching, it seemed that the time was ripe for a regime change. Bill White says in his oral history that, quote, Yeah, we decided to form a GI ticket in the next election and kick the Cantrell machine out, end quote. Let's pause for a second. A GI political ticket? As in running a political party of GIs? What's that about? Well, heck, why wouldn't that work, right? Built into a GI ticket, you have patriotism, respect for armed forces, a virtually guaranteed voting block of other veterans and their families, and an all-around powerful message. Now, I've worked with politicians at the state and local level. There's got to be more to that story that Bill just told. You don't just decide to run for an office on a new kind of platform with a new party, a new ticket, without some serious prep work. Why is Bill White glossing over that part of the story? Maybe because it's not interesting to him, or he didn't think it would be interesting to the interviewers. That could be one reason, but there might be another. I noticed a peculiarity when reading the sources. The circumstances surrounding the kickoff of the GI political campaign in 1946 are as clear as muddy water on a foggy day. There's no source, not Bill White or anyone else, that lays out in vivid detail the steps taken to create a GI ticket. That puzzled me at first, but it does make sense. Think about what it would take to get a new political force off the ground in the county. Meeting at all was a dangerous proposition. Deputies smashed skulls and pillaged the countryside with fee-grabbing over offenses like made-up drunkenness. Locally, elections were the punchlines of jokes. Cantrell's men were known to arrest political opposition, usually Republican operatives, on the day of the election. But let's take a stab at telling the story of how people started talking about a GI ticket. In the book I'm calling The Cookbook, Swifter Than Eagles, Howard Cook mentions how GIs upon coming home begin to gather in downtown Athens. Cook actually uses the old word agora from Greek. It's a good word for it. Though I don't know how many of the Athenians of Tennessee understood what this word meant. So let me explain. Back in Athens, Greece, during the early days of democracy, the agora acted as a physical meeting space for representative government. Think of it as a town square or market street. It's a geographical nexus where people come together naturally and can sort out who gets what and spread news. In Greek cities of antiquity, the agora often had a roof and open sides bordered by columns. Those who could cast votes in democracy and would meet there to discuss matters of the day and engage in commerce. Well, where would an agora happen in town? Well, GIs met in their Athenian Agora in downtown Athens under the spreading shade trees in front of the Athens courthouse. Cook describes how many GIs still wore their military uniforms, or pieces of those uniforms, which set them apart from the public who had been at home during the war. The GIs just walked differently. Cook calls it a swagger. He describes the conversations in the Agora this way, quote, They renewed old acquaintances, swapped accounts of their years in the service, inquired about this one and that one, and sometimes heard the news with a twinge. And sooner or later, the talk always came around to the political situation in McMinn and Athens. What was all that propaganda they had been fed for years about fighting for freedom and dying for democracy? Didn't that have something to do with the old hometown, too? End quote. If you haven't heard World War II propaganda before... Here's a fun clip of Roosevelt administration propaganda justifying throwing Japanese Americans into concentration camps. Yes, the American concentration camps. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Now... Gatherings in the Agora produced political momentum. People already celebrated the return of the boys, or the young men who left town and fought in strange places. Increasingly, the populace saw these men as the ones who could change the face of the county. After all, in McMinn County alone, you're talking about 2,000 soldiers. 
Athens in 1946 only had a population of 7,000. A shift of population that large in any county or city will cause changes in the electorate. You just added GI veterans to your political soup, and these were people who'd fought reichs and empires to the death. Change started to coalesce around these men. The people of McMinn County saw them as movers, shakers, and idealists. Not everyone has political ambitions, though. Most people don't ever get involved with politics if they can help it. It's the dirtiest game that there is. But necessity makes people wear new hats, and some of the GIs wanted to get involved. The closest that I think anybody can come to a kickoff event for a GI campaign against the Cantrell machine was a meeting that has few details, no quotes, but immense interest to a political junkie like myself. And I am a junkie. I inject stuff like this directly into my veins. One afternoon in early March of 1946, as spring started to shake off the last of winter, a meeting took place. Hosted in the back room of a Studebaker dealership a half mile from downtown Athens, the five men who attended the meeting arrived at different times. The dealership smelled like rubber and engine oil. They walked by models of the flagship Studebaker of the time, the Studebaker Champion, with its wide body, pronounced fenders, and integrated grill. The men entering the dealership didn't want to call attention to themselves. I call this the cloak and dagger meeting, and it will be referred to that way from now on. Cloak and dagger makes it sound like the meeting of an insurgency instead of a political party. But, kind of is. Imagine having to organize a political campaign in a town where the sheriff will beat the snot out of you for just saying, election. It's like organizing under a military occupation. Two men who walked past Studebaker's and into the back room for this meeting are crucial in this story. You'll want to remember these two. Their names are Ralph Duggan and Otto Kennedy. Again, apologies for pronunciation here. I'll bring up Duggan and Kennedy over and over again. Both were Republicans. Duggan had big ears and a solemn face. Kennedy was built like a bulldog. I often find him wearing glasses. Their attendance was important. Just by attending this meeting, the Republicans had shown their support for a GI ticket. You've stuck with me for about two hours of audio at this point. You might have thought that there were no Republicans left in eastern Tennessee from listening to this podcast, and I can understand that. Over the past ten years of Cantrell's rule, the Republicans had wandered the political wilderness, driven out by the powerful Cantrell machine. But now the Republicans had a way to trailblaze their way back to power. They wanted to nursemaid a new political movement in the mountains of eastern Tennessee. The other attendees were a combination of businessmen and GIs. They remained nameless. As the room filled with cigarette smoke, the first subject discussed was financing. Money, you know, that wrinkly green stuff that makes the world go round. A political campaign in the 1940s needed money as much as modern political campaigns do. Money bought ads in the newspaper, signs to hang around town, pencils, paper, and phone bills. If the GIs wanted to run candidates against the Cantrell machine, the cloak-and-dagger attendees had to solicit from local businesses. In a twisted way, they were in luck. Many businesses had trouble with the Mansfield Sheriff's Office, getting shaken down for fees or harassed about paperwork. A lot of them were happy to sign on to any opposition to the Cantrell machine. That meant the opposition now had cash. The cloak-and-dagger meeting then shifted to party lines. Remember, the room has GIs who want to get involved with politics and a Republican party with virtually no traction. I can't find who came up with the solution. Sometimes a good idea arises out of a group and nobody takes credit. But a radical idea arose anyway. The GIs would run a non-aligned, non-partisan ticket. This was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary now. Without boring you with the political science, and it's not boring to me, but it might be to you, the American voting system is mostly ruled by plurality. That means you vote for one candidate. If that candidate performs better than the rest of the candidates, taking the plurality of votes, they ascend to the office. When you play this game out, you almost always end up with two parties. Third parties have trouble mustering the votes needed to break this system. But running a non-aligned GI third party in a plurality system was pretty pointless. McMinn County had a plurality system for local elections, and everyone had an idea of how that would end. 
But Otto Kennedy and Ralph Duggan, lifelong Republicans coming from old Republican families, offered to put their own party affiliation aside. At the meeting, they offered to work behind a GI ticket. In other words, the Republican Party would throw support behind the nonpartisan GI ticket. No Republicans would appear on the ballot. Now this, this is something. This is the beauty of local politics. There's a flexibility that you don't have in the national arena. Case in point, I have a friend who's a lifelong Republican who lost his primary for a township office, then ran Democrat as a write-in, and he won. So, like I said before, a GI ticket has its merits, especially if the Republicans would stand aside. Nobody could really publicly oppose a veteran ticket. Well, not after they just fought in the most terrible war humanity had ever seen. Well, and that just last year. Election hijinks pulled against a GI ticket would be bad optics. Plus, the Republicans, I suspect, knew that there was no other way they could influence this election. This might be their only chance. But what if the Cantrell machine went against the grain? What if there was violence at the polls like in every other year? Now, the meeting attendees talked about how to respond to that. Republican operative Otto Kennedy broached the subject of using GI marshal training to secure the vote. I imagine Kennedy crossing his arms as he suggests this. Why not use highly trained fighters to make sure the vote's undertaken correctly? Under Tennessee state election laws, which I'll go into detail on later, anyone can monitor the vote. Why not have GIs on hand, armed, as the votes were counted? Kennedy went even further. He proposed putting 50 armed GIs at every voting precinct to make sure that the vote went off without a hitch. Wow. Well, the reaction by the cloak and dagger participants was definitely mixed. Even raising the subject seemed dangerous, but Kennedy wasn't cowed. He said if the GI ticket did not have a show of force, none of their efforts would matter. The others argued that if Kennedy miscalculated, he'd turn a peaceful transition of power into a deadly encounter. The cloak and dagger meeting tabled the idea. The election probably seemed a long way off. In the meantime, they had a lot of work to do to organize this nonpartisan campaign. Like I said before, this appears to be the meeting that kicked everything off. It was time to find their recruits. A young veteran with a friendly, open face named Jim Buttram was appointed as the talking head of the GI ticket, namely the campaign manager. If you haven't seen the excellent documentary called The War Room about Bill Clinton's campaign manager, the raging Cajun James Carville, you owe it to yourself. Campaign managers exist to be the strategic voice of a campaign. They also take the heat when something goes wrong. Jim would have his work cut out for him. Now, Republican Otto Kennedy's idea of an armed force to secure the polls persisted. It gained enough traction to bring our young friend Bill White back into the story. As Jim Buttram stepped into his role as campaign manager, Jim asked Bill White to take on a special role. Bill was to organize, quote, a fighting bunch to keep the Cantrell forces from beating up GIs and keep them away from taking the election, end quote. Bill White, the consummate soldier, says about this that, quote, that was right down my alley. I like that. So I got out and started organizing with a bunch of GIs. I learned that you get the poor boys out of poor families and the ones that was frontline warriors that's done fighting and didn't care to bust a cap on you. I learned to do that. So that's what I picked. I had 30 men and I took what mustering out pay I got and bought pistols. And some of my hand-picked men had pistols. I had 30 men organized. End quote. Some people donate to political campaigns. Others buy pistols. As Bill White prepared his fighting men, the cloak-and-dagger Republicans Kennedy and Duggan, the campaign manager Jim Buttram, and the nascent GI organization all decided they needed a kickoff event. A strong public display would get the GI ticket the press they needed for a strong start. An announcement ran in the May 7th Daily Post-Athenian calling for a GI convention. It called on all veterans, regardless of color, to attend. Anyone who could produce legitimate GI identification would gain entry. That could be a discharge button, discharge papers, or a membership card in a veterans organization. All were acceptable means of entry. Almost as an afterthought, the ad said, quote, 
If you are interested in cleaning up McMinn County and the return of good, clean, honest, and efficient government, don't fail to attend, end quote. Game on. Imagine standing in Paul Cantrell's shiny white shoes. On Tuesday, May 7th, McMinn County residents like Paul Cantrell picked up their newspaper to read that ad. Cantrell probably spit out his coffee. The news of a GI ticket came at a bad time for Democrats. First, there was Roosevelt croaking just as he started his last term. What a tragedy. And bad political luck. The GIs were already a pain in the butt. They needed jobs, had shell shock, drank at the local bars, and many were looking for work. Veterans gathered around the town in threadbare uniforms and grumbled. Mansfield probably called Cantrell often to complain. And now the local press was getting in on it, too. The Daily Post-Athenian made a real statement by running that GI advertisement. Across the state, columnists complained openly. Now, under their nose, GIs returning from war just called Cantrell and his political machine to task. Then, right on the heels of that announcement, the Republican Party announced their own meeting on May 11th. What were they up to? Not good if you're Cantrell. You ever had the transmission go out on your car? I had a Chrysler minivan I was driving when the transmission went out. Sounds a lot like rocks shaken in a steel pail. The gears on Cantrell's political machine began to grind. In the Tennessee machine politics, if you wanted to rise high, you needed your local base of support. For Cantrell, home base meant McMinn County. Now, after only two terms as state senator, he was starting to see real problems. He might even be in danger of losing that next election in 1946. Even as the GIs organized in the Agora, Cantrell plotted his own political survival for that August election. So what did he do? Well, he actually planned a swap. Cantrell would run for sheriff, and Pat Mansfield, the current sheriff, would run for state senator. The swap of positions would do two things. First, it would keep Mansfield loyal. Mansfield would feel like his political aspirations were ascendant, just like Cantrell had felt years prior. Plus, by any measure, Mansfield had been an awful sheriff. The abuses had only increased. What was before a hush-hush affair now made the front page. Regarding Cantrell's decision to run for sheriff again, the Red Book quashes the idea that Cantrell was just trying to repair the wrongs of his administration. Dr. Byram says, quote, He was not being altruistic and sacrificial, but rather making the only smart political choice that he had if his foundation was to remain secure, end quote. But if that ad in the Daily Post-Athenian made Cantrell angry didn't really mean he took anything that seriously. Besides the swap of positions, I don't record any changes in the behavior of the political machine. The Democrats held a rally in April 1946 and had a great turnout. They quietly chose their candidates and the Cantrell machine players went back to their respective jobs. Nobody cracked down on corrupt deputies. Nobody cracked down on fee grabbing. No speech at the Democrats' April rally, as far as I can tell, made mention of the fragility of the situation. Following from the earlier thesis about Cantrell's uh, work style, if you want to call it that, I don't think he fully realized how bad things had gotten. I think it seemed abstract to him. He'd outsourced the sheriff duties to Mansfield, and Mansfield had screwed up. Royally. Damage control was the bare minimum he needed to do in this situation, and triage was all he really seemed to have the wherewithal to undertake. That GI event on May 9th produced 300 GIs. Many GIs made a statement and arrived in full-dress uniform, some with decoration. A celebratory mood prevailed, and a consensus produced the GI ticket. Let me go over the names here so you can get an idea of the slate offered by this nonpartisan ticket. Don't worry too much about specifics. These people won't be on the quiz at the end of the podcast, but I do expect you to take that quiz. All right, we're going to do a drum roll. All right, uh, don't ever drum roll too hard. I actually knocked over the mic. For the sheriff position, you had Knox Henry, a veteran of the war in North Africa. He ran an automobile service station, had a family, and generally commanded the respect of the community. Great person for sheriff, great. You had Frank Carmichael running for county trustee who had fought at the pitch battle of St. Lowe in France, wounded twice there. 
You had Charlie Pickle running for Register of Deeds, who not only had a great name, but was a veteran of the First World War and represented the elder generation of this GI movement. These veterans, along with several others running for chief deputy, county clerk, circuit county clerk, well, they were all a mix of young and old, urban and rural, Republican and Democrat, and all had seen battle. The Red Book states, quote, It would be hard to sling mud at any of these men, and partisan politics had clearly been set aside. The slate of candidates was a triumph of cooperation, reason, and maturity. The meeting ended in tremendous enthusiasm, end quote. Two days later, Republicans held their meeting and made a motion to endorse the entire slate of GI candidates. One Republican gave the following speech, quote, We are involved in a conflict with desperate enemies who have sought to subject us to tyranny and oppression. We feel a deep sense of obligation and now seek in measure to repay. Young men who have fought against oppression abroad will continue that fight for honesty and decency at home, end quote. That first part about desperate enemies, tyranny, oppression, all that good stuff, well, that could have come straight out of an FDR speech. The rhetoric of the entire night, both the GI ticket and the Republican meetings, kind of sounded like the propaganda that they had been pushing for such a long time. Some new political players in McMinn County were about to capitalize on all that propaganda, Now, that propaganda had been run for years by offices like the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, and the motion passed. Republicans fully endorsed the GI ticket, meaning that they wouldn't run their own slate of candidates. The Republicans gambled their political aspirations on a group of newbies. The Democrats reacted, though. Cantrell's machine started to take it seriously. Among other activities, the Democrats ran an ad calling for a GI Democrat meeting on the 24th of May, less than a month after the non-aligned GIs put up their slate. The ad said that GI Democrats were people, quote, who believe in the principles of the Democratic Party and who will not be used as Republican cat's paws to destroy our party, end quote. Ouch. Sick burn. Cantrell and his Democrat strategist knew accusing the GIs of being Republican pawns undermine the nonpartisan alignment of the GI slate, right? If you had a Democrat GI groundswell, or even the appearances of GIs flocking to the Democrats, well, that would apply doubt to this narrative of GIs being on the non-aligned ticket. So the GIs pulled another ad in response. Quote, The GI Democrat meeting is sponsored solely by machine politicians who have no interest in good government. Defeat is staring them in the face. End quote. In the same ad, you had the slogan that would carry their campaign all the way to Election Day on August 1st. You might recognize part of it. Quote, Vote GI. Your vote will be counted as cast. Don't be misled. All right, this is just great political marketing, so let's deconstruct this for a second. First, vote GI. It's only seven characters long if you count the space, so easy to print on banners if you're low on cash. Also easy to remember. Three syllables. You could even spit out the phrase if someone punched you in the stomach. Vote G.I. The next part said, Your vote will be counted as cast. First, it makes the personal appeal. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. It's your vote. They didn't say all votes will be counted, but your vote will be counted. It's a call to action will be counted as cast. Now that part, that's an accusation, right? Under the Cantrell machine, you might as well have flushed your ballot down the toilet. This time, oh no, this time, it's going to be counted as cast. Then finally, don't be misled. Misled by whom? Wait, when? By the jerks who want to take your vote away from you before election time. Like I said, this is great political marketing. So think backward to uh, chapter 2. Remember Cantrell's old ad from 10 years earlier in 1936? No more fee-grabbing deputies. Not a bad slogan, but I don't think it's as catchy. Implicit in Cantrell's idea was the idea that Republican administration was corrupt. In the GI Party slogan is the idea that not only would the 1946 election be counted as cast, but also elections in the future. It was a promise of process and a call to arms. Who came up with it? You know, I'm not sure. 
My guess is the Republicans. But who knows? Sometimes a fresh set of eyes can really make all the difference. Now the momentum on the GI ticket intensified. GI political headquarters opened at the end of May. Just to show you what a confrontational stance the GIs took with that local administration of Cantrell, headquarters was located only blocks from the local courthouse and the jail. Remember that jail, that's going to become important. This GI headquarters soon became the new site of the so-called Agora. People milled around. It became a kind of ongoing celebration of military service, civic responsibility, and challenges to authority. I wonder if they even had to pay rent. In this Agora, the GIs could swap stories and talk about the injustices of the Cantrell administration. If people were sympathetic to the non-aligned party, well, now they were passionate. GIs erected a huge banner outside saying, GI headquarters and phone 787. Jim Buttram, the face of the GIs, spent every day on the phone rallying support. Yeah, all he had to do back in the day was dial 787. Isn't that great? So... May slid into June. Summers in the Tennessee mountains had a humid edge to them. This was the first summer everyone was home. The world felt a little less frantic than a year prior. Probably a lot less frantic. Babies started to arrive, the first of the baby boom. The GI Bill's funding for college education meant Tennessee Wesleyan, an Athens institution, had record enrollment. But August, when this election would go down, August 1st specifically, wasn't far off. The fundraising and canvassing shifted to cookouts and block parties. GIs held rallies in the remote parts of the county and ran ads where they could. An ad in the Etowah Enterprise, say that 10 times fast, a newspaper in Cantrell's hometown, well, that read, GI cleanup candidates and your vote will be counted as cast. The Democrats ran an ad the same day that said, vote Democrat in just slightly bigger font. June slipped away fast, like June usually does. July came. The temperature really started to climb. One month. The August 1st election now seemed imminent, and there was a lot of work to do. Democrats stepped up their game. They had to do more than run ads with a large font. Cantrell scheduled another large GI rally on the 13th of July, trying to reestablish the narrative that GIs weren't all on the nonpartisan ticket. You know, I kind of thought about... If I was giving Cantrell advice on his campaign, not that he asked, but if I was giving advice, what would I tell him? Well, I'd probably have told him to stop pushing machine candidates. That is, rather than just throwing insiders at every office and, you know, calling that guy gerrymander, well, try and put a GI or maybe some moderates into county clerk spot or something. Does anybody know what a county clerk does? I, I don't. Anyway, they didn't do any of that. So not as far as I can tell. Cantrell's machine already ran like a jalopy anyway. He was holding on to dear life politically. The Democrats had to have a strong showing at the July 13th rally. Well, they expected 2,500 people. They got 3,200. But their celebration was tempered. Their keynote speaker, the Crump-elected governor of Tennessee named Jim McCord, didn't show. Look, if you're in Athens, which even back in 1946 was kind of a backwater area of the greater Tennessee, and then you go and promise the governor, well, he better show up. Well, he didn't. Promising a major speaker like the governor and then having him not show is a devastating, tacit message. Governor McCord instead sent a surrogate, the state comptroller general. I'll tell you what. If I expected the governor to show up, but got the accountant, I'd be kind of pissed off. Do you ever remember hearing an inspirational speech from the state comptroller? This no-show by the governor probably ignited suspicions that McMinn County was on its own. Governor McCord, who will be a side character in this story as we go on, was also part of the massive Democrat political machine. I mean, at this point, who isn't, right? He had won his governorship in 1944 and was in an intense re-election battle during the summer of 1946. Crump, that political boss to the West, was pouring resources into other 1946 races and probably wanted the governor stumping there. At the party, this uh, GI, Democrat GI rally, well, people started to mumble. The rocks clanged louder in that bucket. There's a lesson to be learned about what happened next. 
at a large rally like the one on July 13th, spirits can run high. I mean that in the emotional sense and in the alcoholic sense. Gaffs happen now, and they happened in 1946. Any rally with that much barbecue will probably have a lot of booze, too. And booze means risk. Burkett Evans, yeah, that's his name, a longtime Democrat running for one of the county offices against the GI ticket, mounted the podium in front of 3,000 people. Several other speakers had already hyped up the crowd. And I don't have the text of Burkett Evans' speech. But it was widely reported afterward that Evans referenced to the guys on the GI ticket as, quote, just a bunch of kids, end quote. Sorry, I can't help but use the record scratch sound effect. <laughs> just a bunch of kids. Well, this phrase caused no small uproar. The GI ticket cried foul. The Daily Post-Athenian called it name-calling and malicious charges. If any levity existed in the campaign before it, it ended there. Ads became serious and tense. Usually Tennessee had a political banter that felt a little like Twitter spats. Mostly harmless, not anymore. The Democrats had changed the tenor. What's the big deal? All he said was that they were boys. Well, across the country, and this isn't exclusive to Tennessee, GIs, especially the drafted ones and especially the enlisted guys who were maybe 17 like Bill White, have been called boys for a long time. I mean, they were boys by any measure, including the measure of the time. To call out men who'd gone to fight on foreign soil as inexperienced, particularly by people who had stayed home, smelled of bitterness or old age or both. Popular opinion chafed against the incumbents. As the tide turned against him, Cantrell was quoted about his feelings on the campaign. He didn't seem worried about the outcome of the election, at least not officially. Quote, Whatever happens, I'm always the target of the opposition. They cuss me more than anyone else. We hope there'll be a quiet election and that everyone will keep his temper. End quote. Another event showed the fragility of the situation and the fraying of the Cantrell camp. Let's call it the Rogers Incident, after a McMinn County named Mr. Rogers. Won't you be my neighbor? This Mr. Rogers professed to have previously thrown the 1936 election for Cantrell. That's right, he was the guy that may have been underneath that table ripping up ballots. Well, a decade later, Cantrell pissed off his ally, Mr. Rogers, by blocking him out of the sheriff's lot during the primary. Rogers probably thought that Cantrell's switcheroo with Mansfield was a chance for him to slide into the party machine. He was denied. But Rogers had been a loyal soldier. Rogers' own son was a GI, part of the Cantrell machine, and an appointment as a county clerk. I guess the county clerks did do something. When Mr. Rogers started to complain vocally about his mistreatment, the Cantrell machine's reaction was ham-handed. Deputies showed up at the local cattle stockyards where Mr. Rogers was out making deals. The deputies cursed at him in public, accused him of having a weapon, and then did a perp walk through the stockyards and threw him in jail. The Rogers family was furious. Rogers' daughter actually called Paul Cantrell's wife. Small world, right? They were neighbors, after all, and because of their involvement in the Democrat machine, the Rogers family had known the Cantrells for years. Well, the Cantrell machine decided to crack down on Rogers' daughter, too. She ran a drugstore with her husband. Pat Mansfield's deputies showed up at the drugstore and shot the husband. It's a little murky on how he did after being shot, and by murky, I mean, I have no idea. The deputies claimed they had a warrant for the daughter's arrest on a public profanity charge. How you can start pulling guns out on a public profanity charge? Well, anyway, you can only assume it was Paul Cantrell's wife that made the public profanity charge. This was a PR disaster. This happened in July, too. A number of things resulted from the widespread reporting about the incident. Number one, the fact that Mr. Rogers' son was a GI was not lost on other GIs. The idea of targeting a GI family made the GI Democrat rallies look a little bit fake and inauthentic. People also talked a lot about how Mrs. Cantrell might have made the phone call. Bill White, in his oral history, actually says that Mrs. Cantrell ordered the family of a GI shot. It's interesting to see how a scandal changes as it becomes a whisper down the lane story. But Bill White is always direct as a bullet. Paul Cantrell's wife made a phone call and a man was shot, so what else can you conclude? Only a few weeks remained before the election. 
All right, I'm looking at my papers here. Right, what do we got? What do we got? What do we got? We've got a shooting in a drugstore. We've got blood. Political invective. Uh, we've got GIs versus people who had deferments or didn't go abroad. Well, if you were there, I can imagine you can feel the case for the GIs getting stronger every day. But the shooting and the long history of election fraud made the GIs worry. They weren't about to take anything for granted. About a week before the election, two petitions left McMinn County. The first petition headed for Tennessee Governor McCord's office. GIs and other petitioners, likely including Republicans and business owners upset by the Cantrell regime, requested assistance. GIs wanted oversight and other support and cited previous problems with elections. The other memo went to Attorney General Tom Clark's office in Washington, D.C. The GI ticket requested that the FBI be present for the vote in McMinn County and four other counties across eastern Tennessee. They wanted eyes on their town during this election. They appealed to higher powers to do it. But the GIs never heard from the FBI, and they never got a response from the governor's office either. Near simultaneously, Governor McCord was down in Chattanooga stumping, and someone brought up the idea of problems with the election. He scoffed. He shrugged off the worries and verbally quashed rumors of weapons being gathered. Maybe Bill White's brute squad was no longer a secret. Governor McCord is kind of a funny character. He, uh, If you look at old pictures of him, he actually seemed to have a permanent worried expression on his face. I'm actually surprised he would try to just quash rumors and freely speculate about an armed insurrection, but then I don't really think McCord was that talented. Either way, the governor's disinterest in the situation showed that the Democrats had probably abandoned Cantrell and the GIs to fate. This disinterest would actually come to bite the governor later. As July started to wind down, there was a feverish cast to this election. GIs complained not only about the governor's disinterest, but also federal disinterest. Others around the state started to get worried as well. One state senator named Jennings stood in front of his fellow representatives in the General Assembly and summed up the situation this way, quote, While the boys from McMinn and Moreau counties are facing the guns of the Germans, the Italians, and the Japs in defense of their liberties of their country, their fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters in McMinn and Maroon counties, when they go to the ballot box to vote, must face the guns and must be beaten by the blackjacks of the coterie of criminals who have usurped government in these two counties. End quote. Coterie of criminals. Great alliteration right there, right? Maybe that should have been the title for this podcast, Coterie of Criminals. Anyway, multiple counties were victims, of course, hence the allusion to Monroe. And the General Assembly didn't lift a finger. Nothing was done to stop the slide into corruption that happened with every election cycle. But are you that surprised? This was Crump's political machine in Tennessee. Otto Kennedy was beginning to look prophetic. Put yourself in the position of the GIs. Would you say that they've followed process? Gotten the word out? The GIs didn't hear anything from the outside authorities. The General Assembly blinked. Let me ask you this. What would you do? What do you do when the political mechanisms around you start to fail? What do you do when you run a clean campaign but no one will be stolen from you? Do you do what Paul Cantrell allegedly did? Do you plan to cheat? Do you pick up arms? I don't have answers to these questions. As the days wound down to the election, stores announced election day closings. Some would only be open for half a day. Many would close their doors altogether. Businesses said that, well, their employees needed to vote. In modern times, you hear about people saying that Election Day should be a holiday. You might think, wow, it's great that businesses are taking this election so seriously. Or maybe they knew something dangerous was about to take place. The GIs took out more ads. On July 30th, one said, Quote, it's not a matter of repaying the boys. It's a matter of clean government. You won't regret it. End quote. I like this one because the word boys is in scare quotes. The other ad the GIs pulled was much longer. I'm going to read it now. $1,000 reward to anyone reporting the following violations of the law. Voting another person's name, living or dead. Voting more than once. Buying a vote. Selling a vote. Voting where not properly qualified. 
taking a ballot outside a voting place, stuffing any ballot not legally voted, placing in box any unofficial ballot. We mean this. This shall be an honest and fair election. Ward healers, ringsters, and all bosses take warning. Democrats had to respond to this one. They tried another tactic. They sharpened the knives of old political grievances. The Democrat counter-ad laid into a specific Republican backing the GI ticket. Democrats pointed right at Ralph Duggan, one of the Republican cloak-and-dagger operatives I mentioned. Quote, The campaign fight is as old as the hills. It is the old story of the outs wanting back in. We know and you know that our opposition is being led by the leftovers of the old royal family regime, the one Ralph Duggan. Previous administration was headed by the same clique. End quote. Now, this was true. Ralph Duggan's father had been sheriff under the old Republican administration. And that's the administration that Cantrell ran against, saying he'd clean it up. So for those who had paid attention, it might actually resonate. On the other hand, this was over 10 years ago. The GIs, now a group with political momentum, were in grade school when Ralph Duggan's father was sheriff. But you should note the multi-pronged strategy. This was actually the only effective way for the Cantrell machine to get their word out there. First, act as if not all GIs are going to the non-aligned ticket. Then act as if corrupt Republicans are the power behind the new campaign. Another Democrat ad from July 30th said, quote, To you, Mr. and Mrs. Voter of McMinn County, do not be fooled or misled by 11th hour tales. End quote. If you're familiar with American electoral politics, you might have heard of the October surprise. Well, that's the idea that damaging political information comes out right before the election in November. Well, we have a July surprise here. In neighboring Bradley County, two men were arrested by local police in possession of 72 pints of liquor. That's nine gallons of the brown stuff, or 34 liters for all you metric system fans. That brown stuff is whiskey, for all you whiskey fans. Probably not great vintage. I'm not a historian, but I doubt this was single malt. Anyway, both of these boozy criminals had deputy badges from the McMinn County Sheriff's Department. Uh-oh. Liquor was often used as a bribe to get people to the polls, because who doesn't feel like getting a little drunk and practicing democracy? If you want to get someone roaring drunk, they might be more than willing to fill out a piece of paper the way you want them to. Well, these two deputies, or alleged deputies, were going to throw a hell of a party. When they were stopped by local police, they reportedly told these cops, Aw, oh, fellas, give us a break. This ain't nothing but election whiskey. At least they were honest about it. The Democrats in McMinn County must have crapped their pants. You can imagine the panic in their campaign headquarters. Pat Mansfield had to issue a statement. He said, quote, I emphatically deny that these boys are deputy sheriffs, or have ever been, and I am conducting a thorough investigation as to where these two boys procured a deputy's card with my name signed to them, if they had such cards, end quote. Wait, if? Didn't, didn't they have them? Or did, did, maybe they didn't? What's going on here, Pat? And the bit about the signature is kind of funny. It kind of reminds me of the Shaggy defense, which is named after the R&B singer who said, that person in the video wasn't me. Well, R. Kelly tried that too. So Pat Mansfield tried it and he said, that's not my signature, I swear. And then Pat Mansfield actually shifted gears and said that this was a last minute political attack orchestrated by his opponents. Cantrell was asked for a comment and refused to speak about it. Another story ran in the 11th hour. This was kind of an October surprise for the GIs. Apparently, a VFW post in a neighboring county offered to send 450 GIs to McMinn County to help monitor the election. Oh, that's great, right? Well, monitoring can mean a lot of things, and now there was rumors that guns were going out among the electorate. This story about the VFWs sending down GIs, well, the newspapers that printed this may have actually set off an arms race themselves. What began next was a mass deputization. Well, my spell check says that deputization is not a word, but it is now. Pat Mansfield would start running around deputizing anybody he could. He actually was required and did put a notice in the paper saying he was deputizing people. He also told confidants that he had stocked 20,000 rounds of ammunition in the Athens jail. This jail would serve as a safe house and a headquarters for the Democrats. 
20,000 rounds of ammunition is a lot of ammo. And, heck, they were pulling it off of shelves. Every local shop in town had their shelves stripped of ammunition. 3030s, 30-odd 6s, 45s. Who was buying this ammo? I'll let you take a wild guess. Bill White. (coughs) Bill White. Who said that? All of a sudden, those business owners seemed all the wiser for closing up shop on August 1st. In this final hours, man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in Mansfield and Cantrell's campaign headquarters. Cantrell had tons to lose, and so did Mansfield, and they were about to lose their entire political machine unless they did something. The GIs ran their last ad, quote, Warning to all election officers, be on guard for bogus ballots. Opposition has printed several thousand, end quote. So 20,000 rounds of ammunition, several thousand ballots, now we're talking. The afternoon of July 31st, the Chattanooga Times ran an article about this election. In retrospect, it's the kind of story that makes you wince. They said, quote, There's a great deal of tenseness in Athens. The tenseness does not denote that there will be any disturbance during the election. End quote. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Everyone go home. A 10-year-old political machine teetered on the brink of total destruction, but no worries, nothing to see here. It's just a little tense. I doubt Paul Cantrell slept. Bill White probably didn't either. We're getting towards the end of this election podcast, and I thought I'd hearken back to ancient Greece and tell a separate story that I feel like is related. It's actually a story written by the playwright Thucydides. Here's the Cliff Notes version. The story is called The Melian Dialogue. In this story, the mighty Athenians of Greece arrive at the tiny island nation of Milos, ready to conquer the inhabitants. In the ancient Mediterranean, having your island fall to an invading force like the Athenians meant a miserable life. Bondage was certain. Conquering Athenians loved to enslave people, and they enslaved just about everybody. In this Melian Dialogue, The inhabitants of the diminutive island of Milos plead with the Athenians to go home and leave them alone. Think of it as the victim pleading with the bully not to steal their lunch money. The Melians try every argument in the book, and that's mostly what the dialogue consists of, including the following. 1. The morality or the immorality of conquest. 2. What other nations might think about Athenian thuggery. 3. The idea that Milos isn't worth the trouble. And reason four, five, six, and so on. If you're ever bullied, these are probably the same excuses you actually used. In this ancient dialogue, the Athenians are a little shocked. I guess they were shocked enough that they didn't just immediately kill everybody. Who are these weaklings to argue with their might? After diplomacy fails, the unstoppable Athenians conquer the Melians, kill many, enslave the rest, and move on to bigger and better things. The end. I've always liked the lesson of the Melian Dialogue. It's the story of a mighty, unstoppable force met by whatever convincing argument the victim can muster, and it ends badly. It's really a timeless look at human behavior. It ends in violence. In 1946, we'd see an unstoppable Athenian machine led by a politician named Paul Cantrell. The Democrats see the GIs as kids not worthy of their time. On the eve of the August 1st election, The G.I.s have tried every argument. They've moralized and remonstrated and pleaded for help. All for nothing. The Democrats in McMinn County do not care. The Democrat-led General Assembly in Nashville, they don't care either. The governor doesn't care. Hoover's FBI filed the petition in the circular file, although I think I'm going to try to FOIA request that one. Democrats are ready to roll over the G.I.s and re-up their rule. But they don't understand the nature of their opponent. This isn't a tiny Peloponnesian island. The Democrats have backed their opposition into the corner, but the G.I.s have more than insults in newspapers. One of the G.I.s is named Bill White, and he has a group of armed G.I.s at his command. All the Melians had against the Athenians were words. But this conflict is not nearly as lopsided as what Thucydides portrayed in ancient Greece. On August 1st, Election Day, violence will come to McMinn County. The Battle of Athens is about to begin. Shockwaves from this conflict will shake the entire nation. On the next podcast, you'll hear about the Election Day in a detailed play-by-play. 
We'll talk about the various precincts and what went down. We'll catch up with our two favorite characters, Paul Cantrell and Bill White, who will both be front and center in the day's activity. Election Day, August 1st, 1946, is sure to be a ride. Join us next time for Counted as Cast, Chapter 4, Wet Work. (laughs) 